You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Many government services shut down because of the COVID-19 crisis, so if you needed to apply for or renew your driver's license or state ID cards, well, you are out of luck. The deadline to have a real ID or Gold Star ID for travel has been pushed back a year, very important, to October 2021. Now, those with licenses expiring between March 15th and May 31st were given 90-day extensions by the governor. However, that means now that two groups will be due starting next week, June expirations as well as March, once their extension runs out. But DMV services are coming back. Both Kauai and Maui opened on May 18th. Kauai by appointment only and Maui with limited walk-in services and appointments at its Kahului Service Center. Hawaii County offices will reopen on Monday. Drivers' license centers open this week in Honolulu. The city uh, began scheduling appointments, and they are prior- prioritizing those greatest need license renewals. Sherry Kajiwara is the director of Honolulu's Department of Customer Services. She spoke to the conversations, Jason Ubai, about what to expect. I realize that everybody's really anxious about this subject matter, and we want to make sure that when we reopen, we do it right both for the employees and the safety of the public. So we've implemented a lot of changes that people will see when they next do business with the Department of Customer Service and our driver licensing offices. The appointment system has been adjusted because we need to add cleaning time between every applicant. We also are spacing out our appointments so that they're not a crowd of people in the room at one time. And so we had to cancel all existing appointments for us to, to allow us to amend that Aloha queue sequence. That's on the appointment end. We will be by appointment only and not allow any walk-in for public safety and health. So you must make an appointment to get in the door. Once you get in the door, you will notice we have, we have um, installed sneeze guards at all service counters to protect the employee and the customer. And we will have a cleaning program to wipe down equipment that are high touch points between every transaction. In addition, we're asking people not to come with the group, applicant only. Don't come early. I know a lot of people like to come early, but we ask that you don't come any earlier than 15 minutes before your appointment time. Wait outside, wait in the car. You'll be allowed in 15 minutes prior. You should be out in about 20 minutes after that, after your appointment time. They're also, in addition to that, limited people on site. We're going to have floor markings like a lot of people have become accustomed to, Jason. So people will, will be reminded of the social distancing. Those are inside, seating will be very sparse, but will be spaced. Anybody that forms a line will be six-foot spacing, and masks are required for everyone on property. Are you looking at opening all satellite city halls and driver's licensing centers and have normal hours, or are you looking at shortened hours? Okay, that is a really great question because a lot of people, I think, they don't know the difference between a satellite city hall and a driver license. I have six driver licensing sites, which includes my commercial driver licensing in Pearl City on 2nd Street. I have nine satellites. Satellites do a whole lot of different um, transactions. We have found that every single transaction that is done at a satellite can be done by online or mail-in processes. So with the stay-at-home order and safer-at-home order by mayor and governor, we are going to require anything that can be done by alternate means other than face-to-face to be continue, continue to be done that way. So with that in mind, we are not going to be exposing our satellite city halls right now. We're going to keep those centers closed, but all of the driver licensing offices will be open because by federal law and some state law, those require face-to-face transactions. To add to that, not just online but mail-in, but many people have the option to use our new kiosk for motor vehicle registration. The kiosk just opened last year, so uh, we encourage people to go to those supermarkets and um, get your transaction done. You'll find it to be very, very easy and quick. Actually, I read about the driver's license that it is possible that some folks can renew by mail. Sure. Now, we have had an online system for those who have documents on file and you renewed after May 1st, 2014, and you want the gold star. We have a lot of people that had appointments. 
almost 50,000 people are in that category where we have your documents, yet you don't have the STAR. Those 50,000 people can go online and request the STAR, pay by credit card, and we will mail you your card. No appointment, no office visit necessary. So I'm really pleased to say that in the last few weeks, we are mailing letters to everyone that qualifies for that program to encourage them to do it by online and not by in-line. Now, that is, that, now that, uh, re, that uh, requesting a duplicate to get the gold star has always been offered. But we are now offering two new things because of the COVID situation. We want our kupuna to stay at home. So we have made a decision that although the renewal by mail is not allowed by, by state law, we are going to be allowed under emergency proclamation. If you are 72 and over, you hold a current two-year license, and we have all your documents on file, you can mail in a request to renew by mail, and we will process you and mail you your credentials back to you. Now, okay. for this 72 and older population, this doesn't include if you have an eight-year license and you want to convert that to a two-year license because you're now over 72. The rationale for that, Jason, is if you have a two-year license, you last came in in 2018. I have a photo I can use that I'm comfortable, it's more recent, and I have a vision test and any documentation recent. We, under those conditions, we're allowing renewal by mail. But if you have an eight-year license, I cannot convert that into a two-year at this time because everything is a bit too old for our standards. There's certainly going to be a backlog because there's a lot of folks who have been unable to make an appointment. Is there a way that you're trying to process a lot of these uh, backlog driver's license so people can get appointments and get through and make sure that everything's up to date? Well, first of all, because we're moving to an appointment-only system and we no longer will have walk-in service, all, all windows are going to be assigned to appointments. That's going to practically double the number of appointments available to everyone out there. In addition, we're bringing in more staff to make sure that our windows are full the entire day, including the lunch hour. We're going to try to maximize every service station service counter that we have available to us. And we're also looking to extend our hours to um, maybe open earlier, close later, or include Saturday hours. That has to be negotiated or con with consultation with the union, but I would love to do that if we are able to do so. If I can add, when we do open, and we are by appointment only, my mantra is going to be, I'm going to ask everybody to be patient because we need to serve greatest needs first. Know that the gold star requirement, the start date, has been moved by the federal government from October 1st, 2020. It's now been moved a year later to 2021. So if you are seeking the star and you want to come in and make an appointment for the star, please do not. We won't let you do that right now because that's not an urgent need. If your license expires six months from now, five months from now, that's not a priority for us. We're going to try to meet greatest need first. So when we open our doors, right now, greatest need are those that have a license that expire in the month of June. Because March, April, May has been extended by governor's orders by 90 days. So we are going to, but June has not been extended yet. So we understand that the state is looking at extending June licenses as well, but they've not made that announcement yet. So until that time, we are going to focus on June expirations first. Please keep in mind that the March expirations, even with the governor's 90-day extension, they now expire in June, too. So we will try to accommodate those two pockets of people when we reopen. And when you make an appointment on Aloha Queue, it will look at your parameter, and it will research if you have a license that expired in March or June, only then will you be able to make an appointment. Once you've met the greatest need first for June, and, of course, March, because they now are June expirations, we will be servicing the April and July expirations, and so forth with the May and August expirations. And then from there, we will open it up to anybody that needs. I think a lot of folks definitely want to get ahead. They have six months until their license expires, but now's not the time for them. Ironic, Jason. For a whole two years, I've been telling people, don't wait till the last minute. Get your license renewed. You've got six months. Do it early. And all oh, those poor people that had appointments and they followed my, my request. And 
Bobby got away. So I apologize for that, but the situation we're under, we're going to help the greatest need first. One more thing I want to point out. Because the system is automated to allow only certain individuals the access to make an appointment, and we would change those parameters as we move forward and we serve the greatest need. But we know that there are special needs out there. Somebody who's, well, you know, there are people traveling, there are people driving, there are people that need legal documents, medication, they have special needs. We're going to have a special number for those folks to call and uh, let people know what their need is. And if it's determined that, yes, we need to serve you in June, then we will give you an appointment. People need to know we're by appointment only. I'm afraid of the crowd that will be at our doors when we open as walk-ins, and they'll be very upset to know that we will not service them. Our goal is to not have a crowd of people, not have a line and a controlled environment on site. So we ask people to please, just like everywhere else, it is by appointment only. And please be sure you wear your masks when you come in because I'm going to require that of all my employees. Road test. We are not doing road tests or written tests at this time. This is because the road test environment in the car is highly questionable as being a safe environment and we, we are being asked by the state DOT to work with the unions and the other counties to come, with a con come out with a consistent and safe plan for when that service is reinstated. So Jason, as soon as we get the go-ahead that all counties agree on a proper procedure that the union has been consulted with and approve of, then, we, then and only then will we, we be returning to road test and written test services. Sherry T. Kadiwara, Director of Department of Customer Services at the City and County of Honolulu. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Jason. That was Sherry Kajiwara of the Honolulu Department of Customer Services talking with our Jason Ubai. Uh, we should tell you that the Commercial Driver's License Office in Pearl City has reopened and will operate by appointment only. For links to info about renewing your driver's license across the state, visit our website at hawaiipublicradio.org. And now it's time to take a look across the globe. Experts say that social distancing and job loss among young people has created a so-called lockdown generation. And the European Union play, uh, plans a massive recovery fund. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Wednesday the 27th of May. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway. A warning that job losses among the young are creating a lockdown generation. The EU plans a huge recovery fund and England's top football clubs agree to resume contact training. The coronavirus has created what's being called a lockdown generation by forcing younger people to stop work, according to the International Labour Organization. The UN body also warned that the Americas will bear the brunt of an estimated 305 million job losses stemming from the COVID-19 outbreak between April and June. Here's Imogen folks. Not only are their jobs disappearing, but education and training has been disrupted and opportunities to enter or move within the labour market seriously reduced. More than one in six people aged between 15 and 24 have had to stop work. Those who are still employed have seen their hours cut by an average of 23%. And the ILO analysis shows many young people still working are in informal and low-paid jobs. The European Commission has also been focusing on the economic fallout of the pandemic with the plans for an $800 billion package of grants and loans to rebuild Europe's economy. The Commission head, Ursula von der Leyen, said it was an exceptional collective response. Today we face our very own defining moment. What started with a virus so small your eyes couldn't see it has become an economic crisis so big that you simply cannot miss it. Our unique model, built over 70 years, is being challenged like never before in our lifetime. Italy's Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte has welcomed the initiative, but several other EU nations have already said they oppose giving out grants rather than loans. The heads of the maritime, labour and aviation organisations of the UN have called for urgent action so that sea and air workers can be relieved and repatriated in a safe way. They say that from the middle of June, around 150,000 seafarers a month will need international flights for crew changeovers. 
Flags are flying at half-mast across Spain as it begins 10 days of mourning for those killed by COVID-19. More than 27,000 people have died. It's the longest period of mourning in Spain's modern history and was welcomed by these people in Madrid. They should have done it before because there are so many deaths. But I think a period of mourning is good. We have to pay tribute to the ones who've lost their lives. But above all, we have to be aware of everything that's happened so that we don't repeat the same mistakes and allow this to happen again. Switzerland is planning to lift its coronavirus emergency on the 19th of June, although some restrictions will be eased earlier. From this Saturday, gatherings of up to 30 people will be allowed, and then from the 6th of June, concerts and other events for as many as 300 people will be able to take place. Jordan is emerging from one of the strictest lockdowns in the world. At one point, people there had faced a year in jail if they left their homes for any reason. That meant people couldn't even go food shopping. Michael Safi is a journalist living in Amman. When they said people would be arrested, you know, people got the message pretty quickly. If they didn't, then they saw the inside of, of a jail cell. As a compliance tool, it certainly worked. As a result, Jordan's only had uh, nine deaths and 711 cases, which I think by any measure is a pretty successful response. England's Premier League has moved a step closer towards resuming competitive matches, with the football clubs voting unanimously to allow contact training. Since last week, players have been able to do non-contact work in small groups. The league hopes to get the season up and running again next month. Laura Scott reports. This next stage will involve close contact, such as tackling, and covers everything up to full team training. It is likely, however, that clubs would start out with small clusters of players in an effort to reduce the risk of transmission of coronavirus and limit the number of players that would be affected if there was a positive test among the squad. Finally, he took only 10 days to win the famous Iditarod dog sled race in Alaska, but Thomas Werner has found it a lot harder getting home. Nine weeks on, he and his 16 dogs are still trapped in the US, unable to fly home because of the lockdown. But a rescue could be on the cards, thanks to an old plane due to make its final trip to a museum back in Norway. Now it looks good. Next week we are flying. It's actually one of the first Norwegian airlines, so it's going to also be a little historic travel because this will be propel plane going back, crossing over again, and it's, that's many, many years ago. It's going to be a little loud, I think, and a little uh, a little cold. You know, it's not heating in a plane, and it's, it's a cargo plane, as it used to be now, so it's going to be it's going to be a little rough, rough ride. And that's the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on Oahu, providing hospitality for more than 55 years with a commitment to the community. A proud sponsor of HPR's Atherton Studio Concerts, kahalaresort.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bike Marks Cafe, we'll find out how using artificial intelligence can help gauge our economic recovery. We'll learn how AI sensors can gather data on social distancing and whether people are wearing a mask in high-traffic retail outlets. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for The Conversation comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the West Hawaii Exploration Academy Public Charter School. Committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design, FerraroChoi.com. In the last few weeks, the Healthcare Association of Hawaii has begun sharing some of its supplies of personal protective gear and sanitizer to smaller care homes across the state, even though they're not officially members. It's to help our most vulnerable population. President and CEO Hilton Rathel spoke with us yesterday afternoon about growing access to health care during this time. A lot of people put off healthcare during the pandemic for a number of reasons, so it's good that the facilities are open and taking all comers again, and um, so people can get the screening and tests and surgeries that they need to get done or should be getting done. And these facilities, I'm sure, have put the information out there about what their members can expect when you do go into one of these 
uh, healthcare facilities. Yeah, the, uh, obviously there's a very heightened sense of infection control and we have um, standards across the state in terms of what people need to do when they're in a facility. So everyone should be wearing a mask. Um, they are in the waiting rooms, for example, they're practicing social distancing. There are some places where um, people are asked to wait in their car and then come inside when their time for their appointment is ready. When, um, and people are talking about opening up for visitors. Some of their members are talking about opening up for visitors and there are controls or guidelines about how, what people need to do when they show up at a facility. Well, we're very fortunate here in Hawaii that we've had the low incidence of COVID-19 that we have. To date, we've had 17 deaths in the entire state, and that's still 17 deaths that we would prefer not to have had. But we've only had a total of 643 infections, and the news just came out that this is the third day in a row that we've had no new infections, which is very good. So we have done an excellent job here in Hawaii of managing the pandemic um, so we are the we have the lowest death rate in the nation from COVID-19, and we have the second lowest infection rate in the nation. So Hawaii is certainly is in a very very good position. We have a very very low incidence of disease in the community. Um, so we're doing there's lots of testing being done, but um, as I just said, we have had three days now. We've had no new cases. Most of the cases who have ended up, um, who have had to be hospitalized, have been discharged. So we are in a pretty good place right now. And as far as testing, you know, we have seen the introduction of the uh, antibody test here. And I believe it's Hawaii Pacific Health that has tested a number of its employees. And the, the positive rate is, is still rather low. So we have a long way to go still for herd immunity. Well, that's one of the challenges, actually, of being so good about controlling the disease is that so few people in the state have been exposed to the disease. Now, we're still learning a lot about antibody testing and what it tells us and what it doesn't tell us. But as you just mentioned, Hawaii Pacific Health made a decision on their own to test or to offer testing for all of their employees. Now, they have approximately 7,000 employees and approximately 4,500, um, 4,500 of those employees volunteered to be tested. And the results, the latest results I've seen, that they have gotten results back from over 3,000 of their employees. And their infection rate, or the, the, anti, the antibody the positive test rate, was um, about half of a percent. So they only had 18 employees of over 3,000 who were tested who showed any immunity or, or showed the, the antibodies for COVID-19. Now that's really interesting because this is not the general public. These are people who work for a healthcare organization. Wife Civic Health has four hospitals and many of the people who were tested for antibodies actually work in hospitals. And so to have an infection rate of half of a percent for for healthcare workers is is actually very very low and shows extremely low exposure in the community. Now again, we're still learning what the antibody tests tell us, um, and and whether we don't know for sure that everyone who's been exposed will show positive antibodies. But the tests that have been run only showed that 18 of over 3,000 actually had exhibited any signs of exposure to COVID-19. When we last talked, you raised the concern early on, I think, about the testing and the reliability of testing and to make sure that whatever we were using, you could count on those results. Well, the tests that we have are reliable. The actual the PCR test that is the nasal swab that is done. Now, one of the challenges, though, with a nasal swab is you have to do the, you have to administer the test correctly to actually get a specimen. Um, and so that creates a challenge if you don't have people who know exactly how to do the test and are trained well in terms of doing it. You, that means the test itself will show inaccurate results. So just because someone is given a test doesn't mean that they will get reliable results. Now, if the test is done properly, 
the, the test, the PCR test is highly reliable and we have a number of labs, labs in the state who are certified to do the testing. So there is the PCR test, which is the test that is being used now for a few months. There's the antibody test, which we just talked about that Hawaii Pacific Health is, is using. And then there's another type of the test, an antigen test. But again, Catherine, this, this uh, disease has only been around again for a few months. And that is a very, very short period of time for, for us to really understand how the disease works and how it um, goes through a population, what these antibody tests tell us, what these antigen tests tell us. We do know the PCR test, for example, is highly reliable in telling, telling us if someone actually has the disease at that point in time. But the other tests, the antigen test and the antibody test, we have so much to learn yet, and it will take many months, if not years, for us to fully understand what these tests really are telling us. So there's a lot of companies working very, very hard to get their tests approved. The FDA has only approved a very small number of tests that are out there. And part of the challenges, again, is you, have, you really, in order to be able to use these tests reliably and for us to understand what the results tell us, you have to actually go through a period of testing of the tests themselves and you have to run the tests in different populations and find out what it's actually telling us and that's part of the challenge again this is all it seems in some ways like we've been dealing with this for many many months but it really has only been about three months we're in the fourth month now of dealing with COVID and from a epidemiological perspective and from a biological perspective that is a very very short time period. You know, and that said, I know there's lots of emphasis on providing more funding for testing. The ARP asked the state for some guidance and some help with personal protective gear, and I think may have put through an ask through you folks as well. And I, I know your members are different from the mom-and-pop care homes, but there's still a concern, I think, about the elderly. Well, there is a real concern because we do know that people who are older, um, 70 and plus and then 80 and older, those individuals in general don't have, many of them have some sort of a chronic disease or illness and they are just, you know, as we all get older, I mean, especially when you're talking about 70 and 80 year olds, many of them, do, their bodies don't have the same immune defense that younger people will have. And so it is a real challenge and we're very, very concerned about uh, the elderly folks in our population in our nursing homes and so we do want to ensure that they are well protected. Now we're very, very fortunate again in Hawaii that we've not had a single outbreak in any of our nursing homes. We've only had one positive case that we've identified in a nursing home and we believe that that was a transfer from an acute care facility. Now in our care homes, the mum and pops that you're talking about, they are not HAH members, they are they, they do have their own association that they work with. And so I'm less familiar with what's happening in those homes. But that's a, because they are smaller homes and you have people coming in and out, you have family members coming in and out, they may not have the same controls and same restrictions that our nursing homes have. For example, our nursing homes still have a no visitor policy unless it's really the end of life situation and someone is in the process of dying and then they will let family members come in on a very limited basis to to say their farewells but in general our nursing homes have been very restrictive and still are looking at being very restrictive now our assisted living facilities they are talking about now working on protocols for opening up uh, to visitors but just having maybe one or two visitors at a time and the visitors can only be in certain locations, so you can't just wander around the facility. There's only certain locations within the buildings that they will um, let visitors come and talk to residents. So we are working still very, very hard to protect our elderly in our care homes, our assisted living facilities, and other settings. That was Hilton Rathel with the Healthcare Association of Hawaii talking about efforts to begin welcoming back patients for elective surgeries and annual checkups.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a collection reflecting the cultural diversity of the islands and a commitment to presenting art and exhibitions that inspire. More at honolulumuseum.org. Tune in to HPR One on Saturday night as we debut Blue Note Virtually Live, performances from the Blue Note Hawaii stage. We kick it off with Henry Capono and his band celebrating the timeless classic songs of the legendary duo Cecilio and Capono. We'll hear beloved songs from Henry's career which have become anthems for the people of Hawaii. That's this Saturday at 6 p.m. Tune in to HPR One or listen on your smart speaker. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the private bank of Bank of Hawaii, committed to the safety and financial security of Hawaii's communities for nearly 125 years. Member FDIC. Learn more at boh.com. This happens to be Mental Health Awareness Month, and during this time of disruption and isolation, the need for services is up. That's the subject of today's Reality Check. Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair on the line today. How you coping? <laughs> I'm doing good, uh, but uh, according to Brittany Light's article, a whole lot of folks in Hawaii are not doing well, um, not just because of the COVID concerns about getting sick and, and whatnot, but some very serious uh, psychiatric problems that are emerging. And she's saying that calls to crisis hotlines are, are skyrocketing. The number of admissions to hospitals for psychiatric problems are also on the rise. And of course, it is related to COVID. A lot of heightened levels of anxiety, of, of loneliness, of depression and stress. And that's very understandable given the high job loss, you know, the financial worries, the isolation, and, you know, frankly, just wearing those masks all the time. That's, it's a tough time for a lot of us. And that's what Brittany's story is showing, uh, another side of the COVID crisis. You know, I know she had also mentioned uh, the four uh, cases on Kauai Uh, Suicide. It's very sad. Yeah, she wrote about that last week. Four young men. It's not clear whether they were directly related to COVID, but anytime a, a, a cluster of suicides emerges, that is a concern. And of course, suicide is certainly connected with depression and anxiety and, and other issues. Uh, Broader speaking, there is this uh, challenge where uh, healthcare, excuse me, healthcare providers, mental health services, you know, you can't have that one-on-one face-to-face meetings like you used to, right? And that's so important for people. On the bright side, we are using phone-ins more. We're using Zoom. Uh, she checked with the Department of Health's Adult Mental Health Services Division, and, and that is something they're doing more. But, you know, you got to have a computer. You've got to be able to uh, afford one. You've got to be able to operate Zoom. You know, it's fairly easy once you get the hang of it, but I'll have to admit my first go-arounds with Zoom were, whoop, you know, what is this, and trying to get the frame right and whatnot. So telemedicine seems to be helping a little bit in this crisis. Right. I mean, it is added stress, the technical uh, part of it, but uh, it, it has helped some people. It has. And uh, on the upside, um, you get to actually, if you're a mental health uh, provider or a psychiatrist or psychologist and you're meeting with a patient, you know, you get a window right into their home or to their room. And maybe you notice what's on the wall, what paintings and and artwork and so forth. And and that helps. You can also meet really just about any time, right? It's not like you have to call and set an appointment and then go see somebody. It's much more flexible to have a Zoom meeting. On the downside, you can't really judge body language on Zoom. It's a very difficult thing. And as, as you know, those clues can be so important to someone's he- uh, health, mental and physical. Uh, I would also add Zoom fatigue. <laughs> Having done dozens of these calls, it, it can be a little tiring after a while, but it, it is an important form of communication during COVID. Right. And I, I think it's important to note that, you know, if people were uh, mentally stressed before that mm. this COVID crisis is just added you know, an extra layer, and and they are more stressed out, no doubt about it. They are. And and I should say, by the way, telemedicine is not going to work for patients with schizophrenia, patients with major depression. That just is not going to be a substitute for the kind of services they need. One other upshot, though, one other bright note to end on a positive. There seems to be much more cooperation between private providers and and, uh, government health services, uh, people working across... um, lines, getting out of their silos, if you will. And there's there are folks providing pro bono services, free services for people that need help. A number of those services are listed in Brittany's article today. Yeah, that's a good thing. But thank you so much, Chad. Sure. Yeah, thank we need, you. We need all the help we can get.
That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Brittany Light's story, head to civilbeat.org. King David Kalakaua probably never imagined what Hawaiian Telcom, the company he started, would be facing in this pandemic. We spoke to Sue Shin, who was recently named president and general manager of the company, about the company's experience with the COVID crisis and the demand for its services. To say we weren't worried would be stretching the truth. I think that, you know, no one has ever experienced anything like this, ever. And so we certainly were concerned, but in a lot of ways, it's not very different from what our team does every day, right, day in and day out. We have a 24 by 7 network operations center that is fully staffed all the time, and their jobs are really to continuously monitor our network statewide to identify issues, look at trends, right? So really the way we work in that fashion didn't change. Certainly the way that our customers and the state uh, was using our network changed. We didn't see any negative impact. So I'll give you, I'll throw out some stats for you that I think are a little bit interesting. They were interesting to me. So of course we were starting to worry about and prepare for increased traffic, right? Because of the stay-at-home orders. And we knew that kids were gonna have to be online learning. And so as we monitored it, what we noticed was that internet traffic increased up to 50% during peak hours during the day. So that's from about 11 in the morning to about three in the afternoon. So what we saw was that internet traffic increased about 50% during the peak hours. So that's during the day from about 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then we also saw the traffic increase at night about 30%. In a typical, normal, non-COVID environment, right, in sort of the residential community, you'll see the peaks be more at night because people are at work during the day and then they go home at night and maybe they're online shopping or maybe they're, you know, streaming their favorite web streaming thing, right? So what we saw was that overall traffic from some of the key content providers, right, like the Amazon, Microsoft, Netflix, that grew about 33% over the previous month. So, right, so pre-COVID month. And I guess this part was not very surprising, but gaming traffic like Twitch, Origin, Blizzard, we saw that traffic increase about 100% in April and May over pre-COVID month. Wow. So that kind of gives you a sense of what folks were, were doing in those uh, sort of early COVID months, right? So really interesting, but our network overall, we didn't see major issues as a result of the increased traffic. It has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, we've invested so much over the years in fiber. We've invested over half a billion dollars in deploying our fiber network. And I think HPR did a story when we invested in our Southeast Asia U.S. undersea fiber project, which provides undersea broadband capacity, right, from Asia to Hawaii and then Hawaii to the West Coast. Because it's kind of one of those things that people don't realize, but when you're on the Internet, it's not just right on island fiber infrastructure that you need, right? We need that traffic to be able to go all around the world. So that subsea trans-Pacific fiber is really, really critical for us to be able to continue to provide connectivity to the state. So that early investment helped to situate you folks? Absolutely. And it's not just early investment. You know, the CUS cable was fairly recent. It's ongoing investment is what we need to be able to do. And we're continuing to invest in fiber, right? That half a billion dollars in fiber investment, that's really what took us from that old legacy phone company to Hawaii's technology leader that we are today, right? And then you Um, folks are also partnering uh, with Google for the uh, wireless mesh system, correct? Yes, and that is, for folks that are, are less technical out there, I think what people are used to are those Wi-Fi routers, you know, the ones that have the little uh, like antenna looking things that stick out. But what the Google product does is it's a mesh technology. Like I said, instead of the traditional black routers with the antennas, you have these smaller devices that you place throughout your home and it provides a much better 
Wi-Fi experience. And one of the things that's interesting is, as an internet service provider, lots of times what people don't realize is the service you get from us, from Hawaiian Telecom, for example, that's a hardline service, right? And then you hook up your your Wi-Fi router, but most people are surfing the web and watching, you know, Netflix maybe on their iPad or something. That's not getting it from that direct hardline connection anymore. You're getting it over your Wi-Fi router in your home. So depending on how robust and good and strong that Wi-Fi router is, your service, your experience with our service is going to be very different. So the idea um, is that with Google Mesh, you'll just have a more robust wireless system in your home. Absolutely. And that's part of the reason why we, you know, we realize that the way that our customers interact with the service they're getting from us is changing. And so Wi-Fi is an integral part of a customer's experience with our service. You can't like separate the two anymore. That's why we're offering this premier service, which includes the Google Wi-Fi product, but also will optimize your Wi-Fi within your home. It's been interesting because we've done several stories on how folks have fared working remotely and with distance learning. And it just varies based on your situation. If you're in apartment building and if you have kids who are into gaming, then everybody's fighting for, you know, okay, well, I've got my Zoom meeting or whatever it is you've got to deal with. you know, yeah. with your work time. And, and, and you know, you have a family. And, and so you've had some experience, I think, probably with both those issues. So have you folks yeah. seen an increase in your customers saying, oh, I need to expand my broadband or, or get a more robust signal? Yes, we actually have both on the business side. So with our business customers, as well as with our residential, our consumer customers. So in March and April, we actually saw a 20% increase uh, in orders for both internet and voice services, including bandwidth upgrades, right? And so as people started to work from home, as you mentioned, you know, their kids are home and they're all competing for that same <laughs> same amount of bandwidth. It just maybe wasn't enough. And so our customers were calling to increase their speed, increase that bandwidth that they're getting from us, again, both from the business customers as well as from our consumer customers. So that was a trend that we saw Um, in those months, in those early months. And then it started to kind of taper off to normal as people settled into their new normal, right? Anything else that you can share just about, you know, where the company is situated? We know you've, you know, had ownership Mm -hmm. changes. You know, the COVID thing was definitely not something that anybody could have anticipated. But I think that our ability to really move to a work from home environment quickly. And I guess we certainly feel really, really fortunate, especially as we see, you know, the unemployment rate. So we definitely are concerned, right? Our our overall economy definitely has an impact on all businesses, all residents in Hawaii. So we watch that really, really carefully. I think our acquisition is going to be a good thing for both Hawaiian Telecom as well as for Hawaii. You know, I mentioned earlier about our fiber investment and our ability to continue to serve our customers really without skipping a beat during COVID has to do with that investment. And this acquisition will only allow us to do that. In other words, invest in fiber faster. We hope to really get almost the entire state on fiber to the premise. That was Sue Shin, President and General Manager of Hawaiian Telecom, talking about the added demand on its systems during this time of great disruption. Uh, the company did offer free Internet services to Hawaii schools, and its employees uh, put, uh, took up a collection and donated $22,000 to help feed needy students during this crisis. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mid-Pacific Institute, a community of innovators, artists, and individuals with a one-to-one technology program designed to foster creativity and problem-solving for tomorrow's world. Midpac.edu. I'm Marco Werman with The World. Most of us are looking forward to getting our lives back to normal. There are lessons to learn from places around the globe where restrictions are being lifted. Our reporters and producers are keeping track as countries restart their economies and try to keep people safe and healthy. How other governments handle the pandemic, we keep you updated on the world. Starting this afternoon at 1.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanity, committed to bringing people together to build homes. Volunteer opportunities are available for a June build. Registration at honoluluhabitat.org. We continue our thread of distance learning with HPR's Ashley Mazuo. She's been looking at how schools have adapted to learning from home. Good morning, Ashley. Hi, thanks for having me. So what have the students been doing? Basically, most general way that they've been delivering learning right now is mixed delivery. So they have physical packets and then also online class, which is usually like through WebEx or some kind of video teleconferencing mechanism. And then also sometimes doing pre-recorded videos of lessons and then sending those videos out to the students. But I mean, it differs from class to class, school to school, and even like teacher to teacher, just depending on how each teacher and each school has decided to run their classes. Um, Most of the teachers I've talked to have said that they've discovered that when they do online class, it's really a lot easier to do it in small groups. So they'll break their, say, like 25-person class into groups of four and then just do like a bunch of different of the same lesson over and over and over with the four people groups. But the ones who seem to have a high participation with students coming to online class all the time, teachers think that their students are actually learning quite a bit through that. Um, And I think the hardest part, though, for a lot of the teachers right now is just that feeling that they just didn't get enough time with their students. Here's Ashley Mikoho. She's a second grade teacher at Kanoa-Lunny Elementary. I'm tearing up right now just thinking about it because I feel like I I don't see them every day. I do see them during small groups and things like that, but I still, still feel like I wasn't able to spend the time that I wanted to spend with them. And so I think for a lot of the teachers, it's just been an abrupt change um, really quickly, as has the students, and I think they just want to do their best, but it's been very difficult to do so. So what's the feedback been like from the students? You know, is this effective? Right. So, I mean, again, it depends on the school and it depends on the resources that the students have. Like, for example, so for Ashley Mikoho at Kanoa Lani, um, she says that about 80% of her students show up online every week and come to class and she sees them all the time. But then if we flip over to a school like Fern Elementary in Kalihi, Leanna Akawili, she's also a second grade teacher at Fern who I spoke with. And she says out of her 21 kids, she can expect maybe three to eight show up. And she says eight's kind of been the best. So eight out of 21. Um, And that's pretty much just because she says a lot of her students just don't have access to Internet. Um, I spoke with an elementary school principal, Glemia Sato, um, and he estimated that 65 to 85 percent of his students don't have reliable access to Internet, which just makes learning so much harder for them. I've heard from other schools in Honolulu, from in more affluent areas, and they're actually all following a, a common schedule, and learning is continuing on. But for our families, they're giving the best, but there's just a matter of equity. They just don't have the financial resources for all, for 100% of our families to have Wi-Fi access. Another interesting thing that I learned when talking to Fern is that they're a one-to-one school, which means that they all have devices. So getting the laptops or the iPads into the hands of the kids isn't really the issue. It's more the internet access. You know, you can give your kids as many devices as you want, but if they don't have access to internet, it kind of makes the devices um, not as useful. And this is just kind of a common trend that I heard where some schools I talked to and some teachers were saying that their kids are showing up all the time and then others just barely even half. Um, And so it just seems to be a big divide depending on the resources that the kids have at home. And I know the different providers have tried to provide free internet service uh, to students who need it, whether it's you know a private school or a public school, just because there's this great need. But it sounds like there are just some gaps that, that uh, people fell through the cracks. And so I pretty much think that, you know, some nonprofits have kind of stepped up to try to remedy it. Um, Hawaii Kids Can is an advocacy group here, and they're working to do um, this thing called Wi-Fi on Wheels, which is supposed to be more than just Wi-Fi. They want to also partner with counseling services and food providers to set up in places of need to give students these kinds of resources. So they hope to have a pilot site coming out in the next couple of weeks, one in Nanakuli and then one in Kona on Hawaii Island. And especially for the food providing aspect of it, And yesterday, the Department of Education um, came out saying that they'll be closing many of their grab-and-go sites over the summer and that community groups um, should be able to step in and fill those gaps. 
So those kinds of resources are going to be really important. The DOE is also setting up their own mobile learning labs, and those are kind of similar to that Wi-Fi on Wheels project from Hawaii Kids Can. The labs are basically trying to help students who might have fallen behind um, for lack of internet access during fourth quarter. Those are supposed to get set up um, in early June, and the four sites are on Kau on Hawaii Island, Hana on Maui, Molokai and Kauai. But the bottom line is just that Wi-Fi connectivity has just been an issue before distance learning started, and it's just been exacerbated. Um, so here's Sarah Millie Laffin. She's a teacher at Alima Intermediate, um, and she's one of the teachers working with Wi-Fi on Wheels. The digital divide is front and center, so we can talk about the solutions like Wi-Fi on Wheels so we can get these kids access right now. But understanding in this conversation that this is not a a one and done. There's no band-aid for this. There's no way to fix it automatically. Like this is going to need to be a long-term solution. And about 35% of her students in Eva Beach, they just don't have reliable internet access either. Um, and she says that some families are even telling her that they're cutting the internet um, because they've lost their jobs and the internet is just too expensive. So for some, it's come down to do I feed my kid or do we pay for internet? And so we just don't have a good handle on how many families, how many students don't have access to the internet still after two months? Yeah, not really. Um, DOE has said that they're going to be trying to collect and compile that information. They recently sent home surveys um, to students and they're sending one to parents and teachers and they hope to compile that information um, by July. Kind of the only information we have is that according to the U.S. Census, about 10% of households in Hawaii don't have an internet subscription. But obviously that isn't necessarily saying that that's 10% of students or what that really looks like, um, especially now that a lot of people have suffered greatly economically from the coronavirus outbreak. So there just isn't really reliable data right now on who has internet access and even attendance. We don't have really concrete numbers on how many kids have been able to show up for class or have been able to be contacted by their schools. So looking out for that information. Well, hopefully they can address some of these issues because we're already getting into the summer and summer school. Mm-hmm. Right. So hopefully um, they can close the gap uh, in those areas. But thanks so much, Ashley. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was HPR's Ashley Mazuo with a look at the digital divide in our schools after two months of disruption in in-class learning. And we are all out of time. Tomorrow we plan to check in with the head of the State Labor Department. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow for more of the conversation.